0: And if you also notice, we have our prelude schedule for our prelude to revival in your bulletin. All the nights and the speakers and the mornings and all of that is in there. One thing I want you to notice, uh, it won't be in there, but on Friday night, we're going to be having part of our prelude baptism. So if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've yet to be baptized as a believer, we want to encourage you to be baptized. And this is a great opportunity to do that during prelude on the Friday night. Come speak to me or speak to Pastor John, and we'll get the ball rolling and get you ready for a baptism of that week. And what you may notice about the Prelude schedule is all the speakers are uh, in-house, homegrown, raised up from our own church. And that's, that's one of the focuses of our church over the years, is that in a sense, you've heard of the concept of teaching a hospital. We are a teaching church. We want to raise up preachers and teachers and church planners and pastors and send them out. Around the world, and we're actually going to have three of our church planners back preaching with us that week. And this is one of the reasons why, at our church, since it is a teaching church, that I don't preach every Sunday. We free up the pulpit to allow uh, the men of God to bring the word who are going to be future preachers and teachers in the church worldwide. And this morning is a a guy, a Josh Gregerson, who's been with us for many years and he has preached here before, and he has led many of the ministries. He's currently head of our ethos community leadership, um, and he's going to be moving on to, to a permanent preaching ministry, and this is his last Sunday with us. He has been such an encouragement to our church, to our leaders, and to me personally, as he has built into me, encouraged me, helped shaped many of the uh, ideas and ethos of our church. He's helped me and my uh, my preaching and my ministry and leadership, and I'm so appreciative for him. And so I'm excited to introduce Josh for one last time, Conifer. Josh, bring the word, bro.
1: Well, hopefully it's not the last time that I come back and preach. You have to invite me back. We'll see. Well, good morning. Um, it's great seeing all of you here. Thanks for coming for this extra early service at 9 o'clock. I hope you ate your breakfast, because I'm going to be talking about food for the next 40 minutes. As Pastor Jason mentioned, this will be my last Sunday at EBF as a member of the pastoral staff. Beginning this Sunday, or beginning this Friday, I'll be serving as the English minister at Chinese Christian Mandarin Church in Willowbrook, Illinois, just just west of Midway and just south of Hinsdale. My wife and I are really excited to take this next step for our family. Um, But as great as this is, it's still not easy for me to leave this church. This has been my church for a decade. So many of you have become good friends, and I wish I could bring you with me to my next church. But I trust that God is behind this transition, and I trust that he will use Chanel and me in our new church, and I trust that you will raise up laborers here at EBF. Um, to fulfill uh, some of these things um, that I've been serving with uh, for these years. It's been an honor and a privilege to grow and serve in a church that I love. And I'm thankful to God for the many examples of Christian character and leadership that I've seen during my many years here. I also want to thank you, church, for giving me the opportunity to serve you as part of the pastoral staff these last five years. For several years now we've been, or for several weeks now, I guess for years too we've been preparing for revival, but especially the last several weeks we've been preparing our hearts for revival. Revival, as we've been learning, is an intensification of the normal operations of the Holy Spirit. It's God working in powerful ways to convict sinners, awaken faith, and grow spiritual fruit in our lives. God's Word teaches us that while God is the one who brings revival we still can do things to prepare for his work in us. In two weeks, as Jason mentioned, our entire church is going to stop all of its meetings and ethos communities for one whole week so that we can break out of our normal routines and gather together morning and night for prayer, preaching, and worship. We're calling this week Prelude to Revival because that's exactly what we want to see, Revival. We had a week of uh, Prelude to Revival several years ago, and it was really one of my favorite weeks um, of all my time at EBF. God really used it to speak into my life, and I really am hoping that um, you'll be able to be there in a couple weeks and really have God use that in your life. To prepare our hearts for the upcoming Prelude to Revival, we've been taking aim at some of the sins that may be hindering your relationship with God and keeping you from spiritual revival. These sins are traditionally known as the seven deadly sins. It was Pope Gregory the Great who first assembled this infamous list of seven deadly sins in the sixth century. These, he thought, were the very worst of the sins. And yet, even these most dangerous sins, he decided to rank according to their severity. This morning, we will consider what he thought was the sixth most deadly sin in the world, gluttony. These seven deadly sins have excited the imagination for centuries, as Dante's 13th century work The Divine Comedy, with its vivid descriptions of the various rings of hell, and the 20th century film Seven can attest. But sin isn't a figment of our imagination. And it's not just a tall tale that we tell to teach children how to behave. Sin is a grievous offense against a holy and sovereign God who really exists. If God says something is right and you call it wrong, that's a sin. If God says do something and you refuse, that's a sin. If God says act in this way and you act in a different way, that's a sin. All sin is an affront to God. And the Bible says that the penalty for sin is death. There's one penalty no matter the sin. So we're not preaching these seven deadly sins because these are actually worse than the others in terms of the punishment that we get from God. These are just a starting point for the type of examination and conviction that we hope God will bring in your hearts as we meet together during prayer to Revival. Now then, who has ever heard a sermon on gluttony? There is not a single hand up in this one, two hands right here. All right, sounds good. So for you two, you'll have to give me your comments on uh, later. But for the rest of you, welcome to the sin of gluttony. Well, I I really hadn't heard a uh, a sermon on gluttony either, but I confess that I volunteered to preach this sermon because I knew that whatever it was, I was probably guilty of it. And after spending a week talking, reading, and thinking about it, it turns out I was right. I am a glutton. But I hope that God will use this sermon for you just as he has for me to awaken grief in your heart over your sins of gluttony and give you resolve to obey his will, even at the dinner table. In 1952, C.S. Lewis published an excellent book entitled Mere Christianity. In the book, Lewis argues in favor of Christian beliefs, including the belief that there's something wrong with our sexuality. In making this point, Lewis uses this illustration. You can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? Well, yeah. But C.S. Lewis didn't live to see the age of Facebook and Pinterest. Thanks to social media, we now have a term for this very idea, food porn. Food porn is when people post pictures of their lovely meal online so that others can salivate over what isn't theirs. That does seem a little odd, doesn't it? A wise man once commented, how easy it is in this day to fill our minds with rubbish, our stomachs with trash, and starve our souls. That man was Billy Graham, and he gave this critique in 1955, the same year that Ray Kroc opened the first McDonald's franchise restaurant. Plenty may be pervasive in our day, but it's definitely nothing new. Of course, just because it's pervasive doesn't mean it's undesirable. A Christian research firm called the Barna Group recently released a survey of Americans' three favorite sins they found that the top three most seductive sins to Americans were procrastination, overeating, and spending too much time on social media. No wonder food porn is the new thing. In fact, food itself has become the new thing. Globalization has brought delicious food from all over the world into our neighborhood. This influx of world cuisine has made going out to eat into a culinary safari that nearly everyone can afford on occasion. Those who embrace the challenge and intrigue of our brave, new, tasty world are called foodies. My wife and I are certainly among them. If you were to look on my resume under the section on hobbies, it says the word eating. And I confess that we have at points been at parties and met people, and independent of one another, they've asked us, what do you guys like to do together? And we say, eat. So it's a a very important thing in our marriage, I, I have to confess. So needless to say, I think we'll really miss this city of restaurants. But is gluttony really a problem? In our culture, we seem to be speaking out of both sides of our mouth. On the one hand, we see the language of sin on our dessert menus and immediately find ourselves craving that decadent chocolate cake. On the other hand, theologian Will Willemann has written that of all the seven deadly sins, gluttony is the most condemned, feared, and shunned in America because of how overeating affects our bodies. So we're simultaneously intrigued and repulsed by gluttony. But the one thing that Americans can all agree on is that there really isn't anything sinful about that dessert. The text listed at the top of your bulletin today takes a different perspective, Proverbs 2319 19-21 reads, Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Here Solomon advises his son to be wise by continuing along the path of godly wisdom. But he warns his son that this way of wisdom is not the way of the glutton. Be not among them, Solomon says. The glutton and the drunkard are not walking in God's way. In fact, the Bible says their way leads to poverty instead of blessing. As we consider the topic of gluttony this morning, we'll see many ways that gluttony is a sin against God that hurts us and hurts others. This morning, we're going to ask four practical questions about gluttony, and as we work our way through them, we'll come to my take-home point for the sermon, which is simple enough that you can write it on your napkin at lunch. Eat to the glory of God. But first, let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would use these human words and make them spiritually effective. Break into our hearts change our desires, convict us of sin, transform our lives and our understandings, and bring life where there's death here this morning. Show us what you want us to take from your word, and give us conviction to follow you in whatever you say. In your name we pray, amen. Question number one, what is gluttony? Well, we all know it has something to do with food, but the tricky thing is, the Bible says that food isn't sinful, it's good. Food was there in abundance in the Garden of Eden when God declared his world very good. In the Old Testament, God made a promise to Abraham and his descendants to bless them. And after taking a whole nation of Abraham's descendants out of Egypt, God made a contract with them that said they were to be his distinct people, a people who lived all of their life under his laws. One of the ways God made this people distinct was was by instituting laws stipulating that they couldn't eat certain foods. For instance, they could eat animals, but only if they had split hooves and they chewed the cud. So they could eat a lamb, but they couldn't eat a pig because the pig doesn't chew the cud. It wasn't precisely that eating such foods was unhealthy. It was that God decreed that these foods would make someone unfit to come into his holy presence. But then things changed. Years later, Jesus said this in Mark 7, verses 18 and 19. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Then the text continues. Thus he declared all foods clean. The God-man Jesus Christ declares that all foods are clean even for those Jewish Christians who had been following God's law. As Christians, then, no food in itself will keep us from intimacy with God. While acknowledging that food now is ceremonially clean, some Christians have borrowed too much from asceticism and want to take the pleasure out of food. They think that food should only be fuel for the body. For instance, the wife of John Harvey Kellogg, the, the inventor of the cornflake, was also a part of that beloved Evanston Society, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. But Mrs. Kellogg wasn't just against drinking. Oh, no. You know what else she was against? Condiments. In 1883, she argued, the very fact that condiments do create appetite is a sufficient argument against their use. She noted that condiments changed the taste of food, and in so doing, the foods no longer fit the purpose for which the creator had designed it. By creating appetite, people would be encouraged to drink intoxicating beverages, she said. What Mrs. Kellogg suggested was that we cook plain food simply so that it doesn't create appetite. You know, I, I bet her dinner parties weren't exactly the hot ticket in town. Now, I don't know of any Christians who are leading an anti-condiment movement in our day, but the core issue is still debated in some circles. If taking pleasure in food can lead to gluttony and drunkenness, should we stop taking pleasure in food? This is an argument that's very similar to why some Christians think married people should only have sex for procreation. But I think this isn't a black or white issue, and I don't really think it's a gray issue either. I think it's a black and white issue. Because food is a good gift from God to be enjoyed, we sin against God by enjoying his gift too little. But because food is a good gift from God, we can sin against God by loving the gift more than the giver, the provision more than the provider. In both of these ways, the sin is not in the food, but in the eating of the food. That brings me to a definition taking from the great 13th century Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas. Gluttony is an inordinate desire for the pleasure of the palate, an immoderate pleasure in eating and drinking. Like lust and greed, it is a sin of excess that takes something good and makes it too important. It's a refusal to say enough. So let's move on to question two. What's the big deal? In the words of one author, all that gluttony does is make you soft and huggable. It's the cute sin, so what's the problem? I see three reasons why gluttony is actually a big deal. The first is that gluttony is sinful. Gluttony is either an act of idolatry or an act of disobedience, and oftentimes it's both. Sometimes the glutton is putting food in God's place, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. That's idolatry. But even if he keeps God as his greatest love, the glutton is letting food call the shots. When there's one piece of pizza remaining, the glutton disregards God's command to love his neighbor as himself and discreetly takes that last piece of pizza when no one's looking. When the pleasures of our palate overrule the word of God, that's disobedience. And it's an ugly kind of disobedience, too, because it's clearly selfish. Billy Graham wrote, Gluttony is the epitome of human selfishness. It's your quick analysis to judge which stake is the biggest so that you can get that one for yourself. It's self-gratification, plain and simple. And pure self-gratification does nothing to love God or your neighbor. The second reason why gluttony is a big deal is that the physical world does matter to God. We may think that gluttony isn't really that serious because, as Jesus himself said, God cares about our hearts. He doesn't really care what he does with our bodies, does he? He wants our souls. But that's a little bit short-sighted. God designed the entire universe to bring him praise, and he wants all that we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength, to do that. We who were created in God's image are supposed to image God in everything we do. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul addresses some of the members of the Corinthian church who thought the body didn't matter. They thought that God didn't really care about sex because it's just a natural bodily act. Paul rebukes them No, 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 you're dead wrong. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, it's where God lives. Is it okay to wreck God's house by defiling it with sex? No. Likewise, the food that God has given us to nourish our bodies can actually wreck them. God is not indifferent to what you do with your body. It's his house, if you're a Christian. The third reason why gluttony is a big deal is that it's harmful. To start, gluttony harms the individual. Thomas Aquinas identified five harmful results of gluttony. The English translation is a bit dated, but his, in, his ideas are insightful. He says gluttony results in, and write this down for your prep for your SAT vocab section unseemly joy, which means we can be so overcome with joy that we have no desire to think about God and His will for us. Gluttony can result in dullness of sense in the understanding. That is, when we're overfull, we can't think as clearly or concentrate as well. Third, gluttony can result in loquaciousness. We get too chatty and uninhibited in our speech when we're full, which leads us to use our words carelessly. Fourth, gluttony can lead to scurrility. We can feel uninhibited in our actions and become vulgar or coarse. And five, he says, gluttony can lead to uncleanness. In that, overeating may force us to vomit. Beyond these results, of course, modern medicine has connected gluttony to a number of bad consequences for our health. Obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and so on. Many Christians have also suggested that when we indulge in the pleasures of gluttony, we're more likely to indulge in other sensual pleasures, which makes gluttony sort of like a gateway drug to other sins like sexual immorality, sloth, and drunkenness. All of these are, of course, to varying degrees, harmful to the individual. But gluttony also harms other people. When gluttony leads to ill health for you, it affects the health care premiums and tax dollars that everyone else pays. We're all interconnected in a web of social obligations. Gluttony can also lead to food being unjustly distributed. The popular book and movie, The Hunger Games, is a futuristic account of the United States that offers a contemporary critique of our culture of excess. In the story, the capital is an entire city committed to sensual pleasure including the pleasures of the palate. You can press a button, and whatever food you want will appear right before you, ready to eat. And it's socially normal to eat to the point of vomiting, so that you can return to the party and eat some more. But the districts around the capital are starving. They have to direct all of their resources to the capital. The people outside the capital starve because the people within the capital long to consume more food than they can even handle, all for the pleasure of eating. The Bible says God gives us more than enough so that we can give the excess to others who need it. Theologian Will Willimon says, Gluttony is sinful just to the degree that some consume too much in a world where others have not enough of the necessities for life. If God has given me more than I need while giving the person next to me less than they need, God wants me to help them. That's sharing. That's loving my neighbor as myself. And gluttony also wrongs God. It robs him of the glory he deserves. When we take this provision he gives us, and we worship and glory in that provision without paying any attention to the person who provided it to us, that steals the glory he deserves from us. It steals our thankfulness. God deserves our affection, our worship. Now for question three, what does it look like? Theologians have long talked about five species of gluttony. I think we can think of these as faces of gluttony. They function like a proxy that helps us spot gluttony in concrete ways. To these five faces, I've added two of my own. Altogether, they are hereby coined the seven terrible twos of gluttony. T-O-O-S. You can see them all there in your bulletin notes. So let's start with the first one. Eating too much. This is the first thing we think of when someone says the word gluttony. Overeating. As we've said, God doesn't say food is bad. He says it's good. But overeating is gluttony. Take the astute insights of Proverbs 25, 16. If you have found honey... Eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. A friend of mine was born with a formidable sweet tooth. He tells the story that one day he was at a wedding admiring the cake. The cake was loaded with frosting, so people were skimming off the frosting onto a plate next to the cake. Well, my friend decided to take the cake with the plate with the frosting. And pretty much the rest of it followed exactly in line with this verse here. Needless to say, he doesn't really have a sweet tooth anymore after a plate of frosting. But it's interesting that that's kind of the way that gluttony works. By overindulging in a certain food, that same food can lose all of its appeal for us. It's actually a way of reducing our pleasure when we overeat. This phenomenon should remind us that all the pleasures in life are hollow and fleeting, compared to the joy of knowing God. But that's an easy one. Let's move on to some of the other faces of gluttony. Terrible two, number two. Eating too expensively. Gluttony can leave you poor as you spend too much money on food. Proverbs 21:17 says, Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. I once saw a feature on this delicious looking cheesesteak in Philadelphia. I would do many things to try a bit of this cheesesteak, but what I won't do is plop over $100 for it, which is how much it costs. Now, I don't want to sound like a legalist here, but when you're putting shaved truffles and lobster in your cheesesteak, you're probably spending a bit too much on food. If you're spending too much on food, it may be because the pleasures of the palate are running your life. If that's true, then food is your God. And you need to put Jesus back on the throne. Terrible two, number three, eating too delicately. By this I mean that you may show your gluttony in the high expectations you have for how your food should be prepared and how it should taste. C.S. Lewis' book, The Screwtape Letters, consists of a series of fictional letters from a senior demon named Screwtape to his nephew, a junior demon named Wormwood. In letter after letter, Screwtape advises his nephew on how he can best entice humans to sin. In one of his letters, Uncle Screwtape tells his nephew that the best way to lead humans into gluttony is by convincing them that gluttony only means overeating. Screwtape writes, One of the great achievements of the last hundred years has been to deaden the human conscience on the subject of gluttony so that by now you will hardly hear a sermon preached or a conscience troubled about it in the whole length and breadth of Europe. This has largely been affected by concentrating all our efforts on the gluttony of delicacy, not gluttony of excess. Your patient's mother would be astonished to learn that her whole life is enslaved to this kind of sensuality, which is quite concealed from her by the fact that the quantities involved are small. But what do quantities matter, provided we can use a human belly and palate to produce querulousness, or as we would say, complaining? Impatience uncharitableness, and self-concern. He goes on to say, at the very moment of indulging her appetite, she believes that she is practicing temperance. I think C.S. Lewis is on to something here. Turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 11. I think we can see here how eating too delicately can lead to the kind of self-concerned complaining that Lewis is talking about. The context is that Moses is leading God's people through the wilderness to the promised land. Each day, God miraculously provides his people with food to eat, called manna. Let's pick things up in Numbers 11, verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we have meat to eat! We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedellium. The people went about and gathered it, and ground it in hand mills, or beat it in mortars, and boiled it in pots, and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. These Israelites were being miraculously fed day after day by God. But instead of responding with worship and thanksgiving, they complained that manna cakes are bland and far inferior to what they used to eat in Egypt. God's righteous anger burned against their entitled grumbling. If you have high expectations for everything you eat, and you expect everyone else to meet them, you're probably guilty of gluttony too. Terrible two, number four. Eating too soon. This one's relatively straightforward. You can expose your gluttony by eating before the proper time. You want to eat now. Now don't care if other people are ready yet. You want instant gratification. It's the American way. I do struggle with this one. If the food is hot and my wife is praying for the food, I sometimes feel like her prayers are droning on and on and on. I start rustling around to let her know that I think it's kind of time for her to wrap it up. My wife is praying to God and all I can think about is spaghetti. You know you do it too. You know you felt it. But in any case, God calls us to be patient, even when we're hungry. When we insist on instant gratification, we're guilty of gluttony. Terrible two number five, eating too eagerly. This has to do with bad behavior while you're eating. If you're so into the quality of the food that you're ignoring the other people at the table, that's gluttony. Now that I'm on a streak of confession, I'll tell you that this happens to me too. This happens to me almost every year at Thanksgiving. I'll put some turkey on my plate and cut a juicy piece of white meat. And just as my eyes zero in on this bite that I've been waiting hours and hours for, smelling it the whole time, someone will say, Josh, can you pass the potatoes? I have to put the food down and pass the potatoes. Now, the first time this happens, it feels like an inconvenience. But by the fourth or fifth time that I get that bite near my mouth, I have to really hide the rage inside of me. All I want is to eat. Just leave me alone. At points like these, I can have a hard time loving my family. But that's just my gluttony coming through. In Proverbs 23, verses 1 through 3, Solomon warns his son about the dangers of eating with a king. He says, When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. At first glance, these verses seem opaque, if not irrelevant. The son is pictured as the servant of a ruler, Well, few of us eat with rulers— But commentators interpret this proverb to mean that if the son gets carried away with his appetite and fails to give the ruler the attention he demands, he'd be better off dead. Rulers don't look kindly upon out-of-control servants who ignore their presence. Whether it's a state dinner, a Thanksgiving dinner, or Monday night leftovers, we must not ignore the other people around us because we're ruled by our food. Terrible two, number six, eating too obsessively. I wanted to add this to the list because I think this is a really prevalent way that gluttony manifests itself in our culture. I especially want to address my fellow foodies out there and all of you who really care about the food that you put into your bodies. Let me ask you a question. How many hours a day do you spend thinking about food? The internet lets us read about potential diets, research about where our food comes from, look for new recipes, and scan restaurant reviews. But it's surprisingly easy to go overboard and get so obsessed with food that it becomes our identity. For some of us, we really are what we eat. There was an op-ed by S.A.S. Bill Deresuvitz in the New York Times this past fall about how food has now replaced art in high culture. The piece, entitled A Matter of Taste, suggests that food is now a badge of membership in the higher classes, and a vehicle for status, aspiration, and competition. Derezovitz writes, nobody cares if you know about Mozart or Leonardo anymore, but you have better be able to discuss the difference between ganache and couverture." I don't know what the difference is, but... Food is a really big thing in our day, and it may help people climb the social ladder. But life is about more than status. For some of you, your aspirations may be much smaller. You just want to be known as the person who makes the best meatloaf and chocolate chip cookies at EBF. But be careful that your desire for excellence doesn't become an effort to shore up your pride. We must not eat or think about eating obsessively. Matthew 6 31 to 33 says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Obsession is right next to worship. The only appropriate object for our obsessions is Jesus Christ and the praise of his name. Terrible two, number seven. Eating too unthinkingly. This face of gluttony is simply nearsighted. It's when we unwrap a present without reading the card. It's eating food as if we've made it grow ourselves. But Jesus says we need to ask God for our daily bread. Food is a gift from God and he wants us to glorify him as we eat it. 1 Corinthians 10:31 says, so whatever you eat or drink, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Glorifying God is what we were created to do. Eat to the glory of God. That's not just something that we do accidentally as we eat. It requires thinking. It requires thinking through how we're eating and how we're praising God as we eat. The famous theologian Jonathan Edwards did few things unthinkingly, I'm sure, but eating was clearly not one of them. In his famous resolutions, he wrote number 20, resolved to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. And then number 40, resolved to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I have acted in the best way I possibly could with respect to eating and drinking. Eating should be an act through which we glorify God by obeying and thanking him. Don't eat like God doesn't exist. Question number four. How can we stop it? How can we fight gluttony? I have four ideas I want to leave you with. Idea number one. Figure out what you're medicating and let God be your healer. Food is a means to an end. God has given us taste buds and a tasty world. Food is intended to lead to his praise. Thank you, God, for the pleasure of food. Thank you, God, for this gift you've given me in this wonderful meatloaf. But we so often use food to fix things instead. Are you using food to escape from a world that's really hard and discouraging? Are you using food as a way to be praised by others and cultivate an impressive cultured persona? Are you hoping your diet will let you live to 100 without cancer or any noticeable drop in your sex life? It's God you're looking for. You may find solace in your ice cream or status in your beef bourguignon or longevity in your quinoa. But if you're not careful, they'll rule your life. If you get pleasure, you'll need to get more pleasure. If you get to level 15 on the social ladder, you'll need to get to level 17. If you make it to age 80, you'll need to get to age 90. If food is your ticket to contentment, I'd encourage you to bring that up with your ethos community this week. Take some time to work through what's driving your pursuit of food. Also, I'd say write down these two verses and memorize them. Psalm 73, 25, and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In the words of David, taste and see that the Lord is good. When you're convinced of that, gluttony will lose its hold on your heart. Idea number two, eat well. We spend years of our lives eating shouldn't we consider how we're spending that time? We're called to eat and drink to the glory of God, but what does that look like? Some of you need to start seeing food as more than fuel. Our eyes weren't just made for reading, as good as that is. They were also made for the Grand Canyon. Like eyes, find some good food and be wowed by the wonders of God's tasty creation. If you need a recommendation, just let me know. Some of you may need to start getting into the habit of praying to God when you eat your food. Others of you have been doing that for a while, but you maybe need to be thinking about whether your prayers are just becoming mindless rituals at the dinner table. Prayer is not about speaking words. It's about talking to God. Think about how thankful you are that you get to eat the food in front of you. Notice the people next to you you who are eating with you and thank God for them. Thank God for his ongoing provision in your life. This kind of focus will lead to more thankful prayers, and thankfulness is at the core of eating in a God-glorifying way. In addition to thanking God, let your mealtimes provide opportunity for instruction in God's word. Where two or more are gathered in Jesus' name, there's usually food. The Bible is full of meals that bring people and instruction together. The Passover Seder in Exodus 12, the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, the Wedding Supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Talk in your ethos communities about ways you could implement at home some of these practices to instruct one another from the Word of God while you eat. Jesus said in John chapter 6 that He is the bread that came down from heaven, the provision. That manna pointed forward to so many years earlier. He said that whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood will have him live inside them and will live forever with God in heaven. This eating and drinking of Jesus is what we symbolize with the bread and the juice in communion. But taking communion is not what saves us, only Jesus can save us. He himself resisted every temptation flawlessly but he still died by crucifixion to pay the penalty for your sin. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If that is confusing to you or something you think you may want to consider doing, come and find me after the service or talk to Pastor John or Pastor Jason. We'd love to help you think through what this gospel message is and consider embracing it for yourself. When Christ comes into our life, he liberates us from the desires of our body that are always trying to rule over our lives. For this reason, the best way to fight gluttony that I can give you is to let Jesus be the liberator who fights on your behalf. Idea number three. Fast. When Jesus was tempted to satisfy his hunger in a way that didn't glorify God, he quoted from Scripture, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days when he said this. He was hungry, and yet even then he was confident that he needed the word of God more than bread. Fasting frees you from the power of food by showing you that you can live life without food for a while. It's a great opportunity to show your awareness of how, to grow your awareness of how dependent you are on God for your survival. It's also a great way to prepare your heart for prayer to revival in a couple of weeks. And finally, idea number four, fight hunger. As we've seen, gluttony is utterly selfish. Take this thing that's so important to you, food, and give some of it to those who don't have enough. You could give some of your time to volunteer at a food shelf, or maybe you could advocate for ending world hunger. But if you're focused on loving your neighbor, you'll be far less concerned about your own satisfaction. May you go out this morning full of thanksgiving to God, eating and drinking for the praise of his glory, and loving your neighbor all the while. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you will guide us as we look to discern the sin of gluttony within our hearts and our actions and our lifestyles. We ask that you would give us sensitivity to this sin that we so often overlook. We ask that you would help us to honor you with the way that we eat and drink, that you would be praised as we do these things. We thank you, Lord, for the pleasures of the palate, but we submit them to you, Lord, and we ask that you would be something that we love even more than food. We we thank you, Lord, for your son and his work on the cross as the bread of life. Remind us, Lord, when we take communion, and even this week, of our need for Jesus, for only he is the one with the
0: words of eternal life. In your name we pray. Amen.